Hello, sweet teachers and Pilates lovers. Welcome to the Thinking Pilates podcast, where we're having rich and sometimes way out there conversations about the Pilates mindset, movement practice, and how it just might help us be better humans. And of course, this beautiful thing called teaching. I'm Chantel Lopez. I'm the founder and the ringleader of this delightful circus. And I'm joined by my wonderful co-hosts, James Crater and Deborah Colway, who you'll be hearing from soon. The Thinking Pilates podcast is not only a passion project, but a critical platform for sharing and having open discussions about movement and teaching. A quick note and warning before we get started that in our enthusiasm, we have definitely been known to use a naughty word or two. And we hope you'll love all the words in between too much to care. So without further ado, let's see what we're up to in this episode. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness, this was one of the most delightful conversations we have had. And as you know, I gush at the beginning of every episode about how damn good this current guest is. And John Sharkey is no exception. We just had a blast we did go down some significant rabbit holes. So prepare yourselves. Uh, Welcome to episode 54. James and I are going to be leading the way this time around. You are just in for such a treat. So we hope that you enjoy it. I wanted to just also say before we launch into the conversation that we are getting very, very close to Momentum Fest, which is happening June 22nd through 24th. So stay tuned. If you haven't gotten tickets yet, if you don't know about Momentum Fest, if you want to hear about it, uh, it's a fantastic inaugural festival going on this summer at a beautiful resort just outside of Denver, Colorado. And we're going to tell you all about it, and we're going to tell you a couple of cool things about it and how to get involved, but it is coming up super quick, so we'll give you all of that information. And now it is time. Here we go. Hi, everybody. It's Chantel, and we are uh, we're here for another Thinking Pilates podcast, and um, we just have had such an amazing season already, and it's another great honor to be here today with um, my friend and dearest colleague, James. How are you, kiddo? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so, so glad to be here for this conversation today as well. Yeah. And we have John Sharkey on the line. Hi, John. Hi, guys. How are you? <laughs> good. We're doing so good. It's just really such a pleasure and so exciting to be talking with you I think, um, I mean, of course, who knows what the conversation is going to hold for us, but it's just such perfect timing, I think, for us as an industry to to be having a conversation like this around the work that you're doing, and um, it's just thrilling. So thank you so much for making yourself available to us. Not at all. It's great to be with you, uh, Chantel and James. Uh, I know James is only is after just uh, finishing um, a teaching stint, so it's great to have you. It's great to have your yeah. company, and I'm looking forward to this conversation wherever it goes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, James, um, go. I'm going to just let you. I'm going to let you take the reins. So, go. Okay. For it. 
Great, great, great. So, uh, John, you came on my radar, I think, probably through the Brooke Thomas interview that you did on Liberated Body. And then how long ago did you do that interview? Do you recall? Well, it's, it's odd you should ask that question, James, <laughs> because myself and uh, Chantel were talking um, uh-huh. say off air just before he came on, and we were trying to work that out. So, Chantel, we, we worked out that it was uh, 2016, was it? Yeah, May okay. of 2016. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, unfortunately okay. with me, the occasions um, can often just meld. You know, <laughs> it's hard to... Uh, yeah, it's really hard to differentiate a month from a year. Sometimes time just has that, um, it just seems to fly, you know, it just seems to have that way of, of going by so quick. Mm-hmm. I I can relate to that on, on too many levels. So <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that a lot. Uh, and then your name showed up uh, at, at the PMA for a pre-con with, with John Sharkey. And immediately I signed up. I was like, okay, this is, this is what I have to do. Um, just to experience the view of the body or hear, hear you talk about the body as, as a whole, as anatomy as a whole, uh, which is vastly different than I think, um, you know, how it's, how it's been taught for, for a very long time and how most people understand anatomy or understand uh, how the human body functions. Um, And you certainly did not disappoint at the PMA. I think all of us, even those of us that had heard you speak before or were familiar with with your work, everyone left very refreshed from that. Immediately I came back and said, Chantel, we have to get John Sharkey on the Mm -hmm. podcast. Like, Mm -hmm. this is, this is who we have to talk to. So, well, that's great. It's great to hear that, by the way, and to hear that kind of feedback. Because mm-hmm. as a as a tutor, as an educator, um, you know, I, I always critique myself after I've given a, a presentation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I and I try I try my best to uh, <laughs> make each presentation unique. I mean, obviously there there is core material, but I'm always challenging myself to try to find new ways to put these points across and uh, to make sure as well that you throw, you throw out as wide a net as you possibly can. In other words, mm-hmm. you're speaking to a, a room of mixed ability uh, people and you want to make sure that everybody gets something from it. And you're always worried that maybe, you know, you, you went too far or you didn't go far enough. So yeah. really, James, it's great to get the kind of feedback from you. Yeah. How did you feel after the, how did you feel the PMA went for you? Did you feel people got the message or were there more questions or? Okay, so this is a kind of a dangerous thing to say in some way because um, I don't, when I say, when I say what I'm going to say, I, I don't mean mm-hmm. to um, exclude any other type of uh, uh, movement teachers, such as the yoga people or whatever, but I have to tell you, the, the Pilates community really got the message it yeah. really mm-hmm. seemed to, to resonate with these people. The level of emails that I've received uh, since mm-hmm. the PMA uh, presentation and just that the, the, the communication level in general has gone into, uh, into warp speed. It's, it was, it's really just hugely gratifying for me. And I, I'll say that mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's an honest answer to you, that the Pilates community 
really seem to uh, understand uh, the philosophy and the model as as I explained it. And mm-hmm. to be honest, I'm, I'm not overly surprised about that because I really do believe that uh, that Pilates generally um, is a is a movement that I, that I can that I can relate to. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. So uh, John, for those people who don't know you, on your on your website it says you're a clinical anatomist, exercise physiologist. And neuromuscular therapist. So when you meet people, how do you describe what it is you do professionally? With with um, with some difficulty. <laughs> you, to, be, to be honest, I, I, I try to, to minimize it so um, there's a hierarchy. So I would start by introducing myself as a clinical anatomist. Uh-huh. Now I am a clinical anatomist, I'm an exercise physiologist, and yes, I'm involved in bodywork therapy. And the question you could say is why? And the, the reason why is that I, I started out in, um, in bodywork therapy and in movement in the, in the 70s. And from the very earliest days and in Ireland, now you have to remember that the bodywork therapy scene was not very well developed. Um, it was mostly massage practitioners they would have been burning incense and perhaps <laughs> playing whale sounds in the background um, mm-hmm. on whatever little little tape recorder we would have had in those days, and uh, they would have they would have really been people on the fringe. Mm. So it wasn't necessarily something that you you would have spoken about openly. But from those very earliest days, those individuals who did influence me basically said to me that anatomy and physiology were the bedrock. They were the foundation stone for any movement or bodywork therapy. And so from the very earliest stages, um, it became clear to me that I had to make sure that I had those foundations. And so now having said that, I also had a love for just learning about the human body I'd love to tell you that I had a vision in my head as to what I was going to be when I got older, but that's not true because in the, the 70s, particularly in Ireland, um, it, was, it, was, it was quite a grim place in terms of employment and in terms of economics. So there were no great uh, career opportunities. There wasn't something to aspire to. And as I say, mm-hmm. the the bodywork therapy world and even the health fitness world had not really arrived in Ireland. So we had our first fitness center open, I think around 1978, 77 or 78. And we just had enormous queues of people wanting to join it. I was one of the first to join it. I joined it with my brother and, um, and people would ask the question, you know, what goes on in there? What do they do in there? Nobody had any idea what was, what was happening inside these places called, you know, fitness centers. So, and this is what, you know, there are people who are listening in, you know, to, to Thinking Pilates and they're, they're of a, an ilk similar to myself. They're, of a, they're in their, maybe their early 60s or their late 50s. And they, they can, they can recognise that to some extent. But the USA, I mean, America was, was way ahead of, 
of, of Ireland. Nowadays, Dublin is like a little microcosm of the USA. We're like a little New York City. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. people, even, people even say, I'm going to put gas in my car. I mean, that, <laughs> it, it, it really is true. We, we, we'd, say, we'd say petrol or diesel, but right. a lot of people say, I'm just going to go and put gas in my car because we're so influenced um, by the USA. And now because um, flights are reasonably cheap, um, again, when, when I was younger, to, to fly to, to London would have taken maybe three, three months' ma- uh, wages. And now with uh, the likes of Ryanair, etc., you can get flights for, for less than maybe $70 or $40 mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, so all, of, all, of it has, all of it has changed. So, um, so James, have I answered your question or is there, have I left something out? <laughs> yeah, I'll no. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I guess for, uh, for, for the sake of the audience, um, what is a clinical anatomist? So that, that's a great question, and I love answering it. <laughs> the clinical, so uh, last weekend, I gave a presentation um, at the um, National Conference of Clinical Anatomists, and there were some very famous um, anatomists uh, there present. Professor Susan uh, Standring was there, um, and Professor Standring is the editor of Gray's Anatomy. So that'll give you an idea mm-hmm. um, of the level of, of presenting that they had. Yeah. And these individuals um, are people who are responsible for providing the uh, anatomy education to uh, medical students, so people who are going to become doctors um, mm-hmm. or they're going to go on to become surgeons. So when, uh, for instance, a, a person has qualified as a surgeon, they may wish to come back and do some um, specialist focus in anatomy. And so that's, that's part of my job. My job is, to, um, is to, to teach them the anatomy. Of course, we're working with cadavers. We're working with bodies that have no, no breath, no life in them. And so, therefore, it is better that a surgeon would make a mistake uh, on a cadaver uh, as opposed to... Uh, try, trying something out for the first time on a real patient. And, and that has happened. I mean, that has happened on more than one occasion because perhaps depending on the geographical location, there would have been either no donation program or mm-hmm. certainly, um, you know, there are certain countries where because of religious beliefs, there would be no, no cadaveric studies. Mm. So th- th- this is a so this this is a real issue, and um, studying anatomy by dissection provides a, a unique opportunity, and particularly with the type of an, um, anatomy that I that I teach, I, I use both fresh frozen cadavers and something called teal soft fixed cadavers, and the teal soft fixed cadavers means that I can uh, really provide whoever it may be coming in for the experience, whether it's you know, a surgeon or, or a movement practitioner, a Pilates teacher, it gives them a very realistic view of the human body. It's more akin mm-hmm. to an individual who has been anesthetized so that the colors all, all remain true mm. and I can keep arterial and venal um, fluids f- flowing and I can intubate the uh, cadaver, which means I can keep the lungs inflating and, and deflating. So it's a very, very real 
experience in that regard. So, that, so that's what a clinical anatomist is. A clinical anatomist is responsible for teaching anatomy to, um, to undergraduate medical students and postgraduate uh, learners. So no big deal, mm -hmm. really. Yeah. Just, so no big you know. Well, here's the thing. I like to shoot from the hip. Yeah. So unfortunately, what we have is if, if you wanted to, you know, do your tax returns um, at the end of a year, who would you go to? Would you go to somebody who happens to know a little bit about math, who lives down the road and has a good reputation for math? Or would you, would you seek out somebody who is a qualified accountant? And um, it's, one of, it's just one of my little, one of my little uh, bees that I have in the bonnet. And that is that, unfortunately, I think that um, the, the anatomy generally is just being, is being eroded. The integrity of, of the anatomist is being eroded, and uh, mm. what we're seeing also in the in the colleges, not that anatomy per se is being eroded, because we have these uh, computerized three D models, and we, um, all of that's fantastic, and virtual reality is coming in, but just the uh, opportunity and experience of dissecting and having that led by a qualified clinical anatomist. I just think there isn't um, there isn't a substitute for that, and I think that when an individual gets the opportunity to study anatomy with a clinical anatomist, they they need to uh, they need to grab it with both hands. Mm -hmm. There, I've said it. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so when you I hope so when you say that when you say that, John, do you mean that there are fewer clinical anatomists, or just the role of the clinical anatomist is declining? Um, I I am an endangered species, uh -huh. so we really are getting uh, thin on the ground. Hmm. So clinical anatomists um, are are fewer and fewer. So hmm. it's just a <sighs> yeah, yeah, and that must weigh on you particularly heavy because your view of anatomy. Is, I mean, I don't know any other clinical anatomist, but I would have to imagine your view of anatomy is quite unique in compared to probably a lot of clinical anatomists. So what is, uh, what is your view on anatomy, John? Like, why are we here? What is, <laughs> talk to me about, talk to me about anatomy. Okay. So the funny thing is that it's, it's all to do with, uh, it's all to do with individual experience and it's, it's typical of, the, of my vision of anatomy. Um, my explanation to you is less about one individual part. It's more to do with the entire journey that I've taken. And in fact, that journey involves me growing up in the 60s. And, uh, and because of that, I was fascinated with man's quest to, to go to the moon. And mm -hmm. John F. Kennedy... Um, was was my hero when he made that that famous speech about uh, you know why some say the moon you know uh, why do why does uh, you know rice play play Texas you know mm -hmm. because he chose to do the difficult things and then um, then we had Captain James T Kirk at Starship Enterprise and the <laughs> oh my gosh you're a, you are a person <laughs> after my own heart John well we're probably going to we're probably going to lose a couple of, of listeners now once I mention uh, <laughs> Starship, but the technology of the year 2245, you know, it <laughs> held me in awe because 
You had episodes replete with references to subspace and tachyon beams and iron <laughs> sleeves and what else? Quantum fluctuations and, of course, the photon torpedoes and warp speed black holes and event horizons. And <laughs> God, I love it. Goes on. It was just, you know, it was it was amazing. And then in the 1980s, uh, my heroes included Carl Sagan, who yes. many will know, some will not, will not know of. He was an astronomer, cosmologist, um, astrophysicist, astrobiologist. Mm-hmm. And um, and then as a, as a as I got into anatomy, I've always had a keen interest in, in evolution and evolutionary biology. And then that, that brought me into the work of um, one of my modern day heroes, which is uh, Richard Dawkins. So, and I also um, came through a background of dance and then from, and from dance into the martial arts. And the type of martial arts that I was initially involved in was uh, called Kung Fu, or some people call it Kung Fu. Kung Fu. And it was less about the fighting, it was more to do with the actual art of it. It was the beautiful, sweeping, flowing lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you stop and think of that for a moment, the martial artists, what they were doing, of course, was they were copying the movements of insects and animals. Animals, yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that's something that, uh, that Joseph Pilates was also particularly interested in, as were many people of Joe Pilates' ilk. Uh, if there were people who were of that time um, doing, doing similar things. So, and that extended into the, into the uh, 60s and 70s. So I was very interested in, in, in that side of things, how animals moved. And um, I suppose that, that, that dance and kung fu experience uh, led me to a more fluid-based appreciation of fluid-based vision of the human body. And so when I started getting into studying anatomy, um, it was at odds with the way I, I felt that we moved. Mm-hmm. It was at odds with, with just my, the own, my images, my own images of, of what, a, what it was to be a human being or to be an animal, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the word anatomy means to cut up, to mm-hmm. cut apart. And one has to, has to have that in mind all the time that uh, in order to appreciate the continuity of the human body, uh, the first thing you do in, in anatomy is you take a scalpel and you make an incision. And if you're, if you're open to, to that, that way of thinking, that very first thing that you do, that, that moving the scalpel along the surface of the skin breaks a continuity that has been present for probably 70, 80 or 90 years. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it, it really drives home, for me anyway, it drives home the, the idea, the notion that the, the body is connected because the only way to break that connection is to use a scalpel or scissors or you know blunt dissection. Mm. So, so it's been, it's just it's been part of who I am, I suppose, um, as opposed to having any one person tell me. Because in anatomy and an anatomical study, they're still teaching anatomy today, almost the exact same way that they would have taught anatomy. I mean, I don't know how far back you want to go. You can go back, um, you know, three hundred, six hundred years mm-hmm. 
And um, so, so students, for instance, in my alma mater in, in Dundee in Scotland, students would come into the Department of Anatomy and we would use Gray's Dissector. And uh, we're moving away from Gray's Dissector now. Dundee are now using their own uh, photographs and, and building up their own um, materials because of the fact that they use teal uh, cadavers, the, the images from Gray's uh, don't really correlate with the work that's being taught. But what would have happened is that you would open up page 11 and it would, it would tell you exactly what to do, what your first incision should be, where it should be. And the students the year previous would have done the same and the students the year previous to that would have done the same. So this idea of dissection in terms of anatomical study for, for medicine has, has just simply been uniform. It's been the same for hundreds of years. Versalius probably would have thought the exact same dissection. There's, there, there isn't um, a new thought process in that regard. I mean, anatomy is about discovering something new almost every week. We would have yeah. thought, for instance, mm -hmm. until recent times that the cartilage tissue or meniscus um, was avascular, didn't have a blood supply. We now know that it does have a blood supply. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there are constantly new things um, being discovered in anatomy, but that's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that the way in which dissection is carried out um, is the same today as, as it was 300 years ago. And part of that is that the student is really interested in where. Where is the superior mesenteric? Where is the uh, brachial plexus? What is the path of the vagus nerve or the phrenic nerve? And Anatomists are really interested in detail. So, you know, we want to know that, you know, something lies, you know, one millimeter medial to such and such a structure. And that's tremendously important because a surgeon has to know where these nerves and blood vessels are because they can't make an incision. Well, you, you don't want to make an incision and suddenly discover, oops, I've, I've hit a nerve. However, in, in order to see those interesting structures, they've had to go through the skin and through the, certainly through the subcutaneous fascia, the fascia superficialis, and that ends up then in trays um, beneath the, the trolley holding the cadaver. So there really hasn't been a focus on, one, the fascia, and two, there hasn't really been a focus on uh, continuity because the whole purpose is to create parts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so and so, in short, uh, mm -hmm. go ahead, John. I'm sorry. No, I said I said I I, I had a pregnant pause there because I just don't <laughs> want to be talking for too long without giving you an opportunity <laughs> to ask a question or to to point me in a particular direction. Um, no, I was just going to say the uh, from my experience with you and from what to what you're saying, I think. For, for people listening out there, your view of anatomy is more of a holistic, continual flow of anatomy versus reducing anatomy to, to bits and pieces um, and more, more of how a puzzle would fit together rather than how a sweater might be knit. Does that make sense? So it does. How... It... Go ahead. I was going to say that Understanding the parts is tremendously important, and particularly when you stop and think about 
how have we arrived at this point in time in 2018? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we've come yeah. through um, Euclid, René Descartes, we've come through Borelli and Isaac Newton and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Albert Einstein and, and, and others. We've come through the Industrial Revolution. And you can understand that people were impressed with the, with the way in which humans have managed to, um, you know, move forward in our ability to be able to view things. We, we now have incredible electron microscopes. We have uh, light technology. We have nanotechnology. We can illuminate, um, you know, cells and tissues in a way that we, we, we couldn't, we'd say, even 20, even 10, 15 years ago. We have computer technology now to integrate into all of those. But the, but the, and that's fantastic. The, the, the downside to that is that we have been, um, we have been specializing, and by specializing, we have been separating and separating and separating. Yeah. We have so many specialist areas now, which I'm, I'm not giving out about that for a moment. I'm saying that's absolutely fantastic. But what needs to happen is that we all need to take a cleansing breath and stop for a moment and in that stillness just remind ourselves that there is continuity in the human body Um, embryology is a a wonderful witness to that because when you think about the developing fetus the developing embryo at no stage did somebody Uh, at no stage did any mother ask for somebody to felcro on an upper limb or to um, have an operation to uh, install a a liver. Mm. You you grew the upper limb, you grew the liver, you grew the spleen, you self-developed, you self-emerged. And because of that, everything is continuous and everything is connected it could not be simpler and yet people struggle with that idea so it can be useful at times to talk about parts Mm -hmm. but as long as we bring ourselves back and remind ourselves that there are no parts in the human body there are no layers in the human body we can use mris or ultrasonography and we can see dark bands and light bands and little thin lines and then thicker lines and we can say oh look at that layer but that is a language of convenience there are no layers in the human body everything from the skin which is the surface right down to the the sandy shores of your bones uh, your 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 body is is continuous from superficial to deep there's this, mm. there's, there's no truer word spoken Mm-hmm. It's so fascinating because there's so many parallels. I think you said something in the interview with Brick Thomas about language and um, specifically, and we don't have to get into this, but talking about tissue stretching. And, and you know, that's obviously a valuable um, technical conversation. But what struck me most was that 
you had, and maybe you can just speak to this, like what does it do when we have a misinterpretation of the parts in terms of how we assess and address the whole? Wow, that's a, um, okay. Uh, now we're falling into a deep uh, black hole. Oh, no. <laughs> which, is, which is fantastic. Um, so first of all, when we look at any living structure, we're, we're talking about humans um, on, on Thinking Pilates today, but we could be talking about any living structure whatsoever. And we have to ask ourselves the question, how have we, how have we developed the language that we use to explain our anatomy and to explain how it is that we do what we do. So for instance, it's, it's not going to come as any great surprise to individuals who study mechanics to learn that within classical uh, biomechanics, there is no way to explain how the bumblebee can fly. This is a conversation I was having with a colleague of mine, Joanne Avison, just in the last couple of weeks. Uh, however, the, the bumblebee can fly. Hmm. There, of, that, of that, there is, there is no doubt. However, classic, classical biomechanics cannot explain it. Now, for me, that is a reflection of, a, of, of an issue, of a problem, of a flaw. Because again, when we look at how we've arrived where we are, we would have, we would have looked at, for instance, the, the um, steam engine as an example. And we would have been fascinated with, with man's ability to have invented the steam engine. And we would have applauded uh, such an invention, and rightly so. But then people began to, whether it was even back in the, the days of Leonardo da Vinci, um, where they were using lever systems and screws and bolts um, in order to be able to invent amazing machines. Usually these machines were, were war machines. And so they, they thought about the human body in, in a similar manner. But the problem as I see it, and of course, it's only my opinion, and my opinion could be completely and utterly wrong. <laughs> but the way I look at it is that we are using hard matter physics. We are using the same explanations that we use for an airplane or an automobile or a lift that goes to the 29th floor of a high-rise building. And we're talking about RSJs and we're talking about block-on-block -block structures that require um, gravity in order to be able to you know, stay in place. And, and, and we are not hard matter. We are soft matter. Mm. And so we need to bring soft matter physics to the table. And, and it is that simple. If we continue to try to discuss and understand living uh, living anatomy, living structures, using hard matter physics, then we will only get a certain distance. I'm not saying that we need to throw the baby out with the bath water, but, the, but and this is going to be 
difficult for some of the listeners because we don't have time to go into this in great detail. But when you look at a, at a human being, the textbooks will tell you that we have first class, second class and third class levers in the body. Because when you look at your upper limb and you look at the elbow and you create flexion at your elbow, it looks like a lever. It even seems to act like a lever system, but you do not have levers in the human body. You do not have joints in the human body. Not a joint as is described in, in mechanics and in, in what they call biomechanics, because although they're calling it biomechanics, the mechanics that they're talking about are the mechanics of non-living things. Hmm. And even the language that they use, let's look at the language because the language gives the game away. That stack of bones that you have in your back, you know, running from the base of your head, you know, hmm. all the way down to the coccyx, what do we call that? We call that your vertebral column. It's not a column. It cannot be a column, but they called it a column because that reflects the, this illusion that it is a block-on-block block tower of bones, one sitting on the other, compressing the intervertebral disc, which is not at all what is happening. And if you had joints, um, as described in classical biomechanics, remember, what did they call them in classical biomechanics? They called them pin joints. It, that tells you that you'd have to have one bone overlapping its neighbour, the one above it or the one below it, and there would need to be a pin uh, securing the two bones in place. The facts of the matter are that you can skip, you can jump up and down, you can go running, and you can have between 6 to 12 times your body weight crushing down on that joint. And for people to say that your cartilage tissue is a shock absorber is an absurdity. It, it's absolutely crazy. I said this in, in London just last weekend to a room full of anatomy professors and undergraduates and postgraduates. I said it to them, what do you call cartilage tissue? And of course they came out with it. They said it's a shock absorber. And I said, isn't it amazing that we can have a room full of highly educated individuals, academics, I would even call you, and you're all willing to be fooled. You're all willing to be brought along <laughs> on, that, on that tide. Really, I wasn't, being, I wasn't trying to be mean or rude to them. I, I was saying it to them, listen to what you're saying. And I got, I, what I usually do is I get people to make two fists and to bang their hands together. I said, imagine a tissue that could withstand the forces involved in running, 12 times your body weight. NASA have not even invented such a material. Because how long does somebody run in a marathon? I mean, you know, top-class athlete, little over two hours. Um, you know, your weekend warrior could take up to seven hours. And what we're saying, we're repeatedly saying this because the textbooks told us this, that the cartilage tissue is a shock absorber. It doesn't make sense that nature would build any structure based upon the tissue between two bones becoming compressed every single time your heel strikes the ground. 
So I leave it up to the listeners to to make <laughs> if what I'm saying, you know, resonates with them and makes them go, hang on a second, or whether somebody kind of tends to say, no, no, I, I believe that. I mean, how many people have actually seen what cartilage tissue looks like in a living in a living body? How many people get to see or feel what cartilage tissue looks like? And cartilage tissue has the consistency and has the texture of the white of a hard-boiled egg. So could you imagine your tibia and your femur coming closer together as 12 times your body weight compresses that joint space? And this tissue, which is you know, that the, the consistency of a of the white of a hard-boiled egg uh, gets compressed. <laughs> and it can do that, you know, strike after strike for hours on end. You know, I just think uh, yeah. that alone is evidence. To say yeah, yeah, yeah. That, media, doesn't it sound like there would be a lot of integrity in the knee joint if that was, you know, if hard-boiled egg is, is what the whole structure relied on. Relying on... <laughs> no, and then you see, for individuals who know a little bit about about biomechanics or know a little bit about anatomy, and this is a question that came up in one of the follow-up workshops at the weekend, somebody said to me, but John, isn't the knee joint a fluid-filled joint? In other words, it has, you know, the cartilage tissue in there, but it also has synovial fluid. And then this is another misconception. People think that your knee joint is a wash with fluid mm. but the fact of the matter is your while your tissues are are you could call them moist there you know your knee joint is not a wash with fluid mm-hmm. i mean you just have you 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 the tissues are moist but there's no free fluid there's no free water inside the joints it's it's um the, the, the best analogy i can give you is that if somebody was to take a piece of of meat and put it through a mincer you would not see water squirting out anywhere. So this is another one of these concepts that people have in their mind that, you know, that the body is 80% water, 74, 82% water. And um, yes, there's, there's, of course, water is, is integral uh, to, to living anatomy and, and it's integral to fashion, but it's bound water. Mm-hmm. So if you ever see any of the images of uh, Dr. Jean-Claude Gumberto strolling under the skin, I think people get a little bit disappointed when I let them know that they'll see these little beads of water in those videos. Unfortunately, those beads of water are an emergent property um, and they arise by the fact that somebody has made an incision in the skin and atmospheric air has gotten in under the skin and has caused a, a form of condensation. But you really don't have water or fluids swooshing around um, in the body in that manner. So there's lots, I suppose, um, there's lots of misconceptions out there mm-hmm. in terms of what, the, of what the tissues look like and how they react or act. Um, I'm not sure that we'd be able to do any more justice to it, you know, um, through, the, through the medium of, uh, of audio. But um, obviously, if, pe- if, if I have the opportunity to to be in front of individuals, then I can 
I can use visuals. And, I, and I'm always in toy shops or in garden centres looking for different materials that I can give people a, a tactile and visual representation of, of what's happening in the human body. So, uh, mm. so the masterclasses or the presentations tend to be very um, interactive uh, with, with the people who come to the classes. It's not just about me talking, which I'm, which I'm doing right now, and I'm, I'm conscious that perhaps I'm doing too much. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you, I think you, you know, as you say, like in in this medium, uh, doing a quite a quite a good job of, uh, you know, framing this question because it is a black hole. I mean, really, literally, uh, you know, as you mentioned before, the the um, the continued uh, emergence of information about the body. You know, it's it's a conversation that would just go on infinitely. Um, well, Chantel, you, you mentioned the, the, um, the importance of, of language and vocabulary, which I've been trying to build over a 35-year, 37-year career, mm. because language and vocabulary are so important to me. And, and I, I do understand that people could perhaps get a little bit frustrated with me, mm. um, because people might say, well, why are you making such a big deal over let's say, for instance, the word stretching. Everybody loves to stretch, and I don't want to stop anybody stretching. I just want to, I can't help myself, I have to tell you. That <laughs> human... Please, please do. Please, please go there, John. Go yeah, there, John. So human tissue does not want to be stretched. Now, when we look for the evidence, just take a look at any woman who has, has um, had the privilege of, of going through, you know, childbirth. Um, take a look at the, at the skin following uh, your pregnancy. And, and what do you see? You see the uh, result of the skin having stretched. Now, you might think to yourself, well, why hasn't evolution solved that problem? I mean, you know, the, the female of the species, whatever species that may be, they, they get pregnant and they, they, they carry child. So why is it that they're, you know, that they're left with these scars on the, on, the, on the skin? And in fact, not just on the skin, but deep to the skin. In fact, childbirth could be seen, as, for, for, especially for humans, as being uh, rather a dangerous um, uh, part-time. Um, so... <laughs> Why has that? Why has that happened? But the, we can we can talk about that again, as I say, on another occasion. It's a bit too detailed for today. But the point I really wish to make is that we see the result of the skin having been stretched, and you're left with stretch marks. So there's the evidence to place in front of people. So when people say stretching, I I don't really believe that that most people are are stretching because you have to understand what what the word stretching means so what most people are doing is most people are bringing their limbs or their connective tr tissues through one of two range of motions they're bringing their tissues through physiological range of motion which is not stretching or they're bringing their 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 limbs through anatomical range of motion which is a relationship of the of the bony structures, mm -hmm. uh, which again is not stretching. What, what exactly is stretching? 
Stretching is taking a tissue to the ends of the physiological range and then going further. Beyond. And when you do that and you go further, um, the, the, the tissues seldom recover. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is that when you start, people, people tend to um, look at success or they gauge success through range of motion. Now, if a tissue has shortened, if for some reason there is spastic activity or there is you know, some type of hypertonicity issue, then that tissue is short of its physiological range. And bringing that back to its natural physiological range is not stretching. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're simply returning what was lost. But if you, if you start getting into truly stretching a tissue, the chances are you're getting into your ligamentous system. And when you stretch ligamentous tissue, like somebody who goes over on their ankle and damages their ligaments, they will know that they have a tendency to go over on their ankle um, repeatedly. They, mm-hmm. Once they've done it and they've damaged their, their ligamentous system, they've lost stability. And once you lose that, that stability, uh, your tendency to go back over on your ankle um, you know, increases. So one of the things you don't want to do is you really don't want to mess with the, the ligamentous system because when you've lost stability, the conversation that your body is going to have is, I need to stabilize this joint. Well, how are we going to do that? Because the ligament here is not really up to the job. Well, I need to create some tension around this joint. And so either the fascia or the muscle fiber, which in fact is fascia, uh, in my world, it's fascia. All you, all it is is a very specialized form of fascia. It doesn't necessarily meet the definition by the International Committee on, on, uh, on Nomenclature, that's fine. <laughs> that's, that's language for a different group of people to have a different conversation. But the truth of the, of, of, of the living form is that what you have is a spectrum. You have a spectrum of hardness to softness. Mm-hmm. From the, the hardest tissues, which would be the bony tissues, which are soft matter, to the softest of the tissues, which might be, you know, something like, um, um, you know, some kind of a, a soft fascia somewhere in the in the in the in the visceral tissue, or the leptomeninges in in the, in the brain. Um, so, so that would be a very fluidic and light, flaffinous type of uh, connective tissue, which again they don't see as fascia, but really it is. It's 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 fascia. And so um, that's what we have. It's a spectrum. We have a spectrum of speciality depending on where something is in the body and what tensions or compressions have been acting upon it. So it's a mixture of both genetic expression, but it's not just genetics, it's epigenetics. It's also about the tissues uh, conforming to to their environment. Mm -hmm. And so... As I say, if somebody starts to mess with the ligamentous tissue and starts to lengthen it, yes, you're going to get increased range of motion, but you're also going to get, you know, an issue in terms of your stability. And then your body's going to have to make up that deficit. And how it will do it is by stiffening either the fascia or by 
causing stiffness in the muscle fibers. Mm-hmm. So, and it's not really something that can be reversed. This is where a prolotherapy is now starting to have some success because really there's, what else can somebody do? Some people sometimes go to have an operation where somebody might cut the, the ligament and pull it and then staple it or super glue it um, in a shortened position in the hope that that will offer some stability. So really be, just be, be careful what, what, you, um, what you wish for. Because if you're wishing for increased range of motion, you have to ask yourself the question, where did I get the increased range of motion? So if, the, mm-hmm. if, if there was a shortness in the tissue in the first place and you're simply trying to restore what was lost, you have to first of all understand where the integrity was lost. What is this? What am I dealing with? Because if you don't know what you're dealing with, then you don't know what tools to bring to the occasion to rectify the problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was a bit long-winded as well, you see. So no. there are no short answers uh, with John Shark. <laughs> well, I think the truth is there are no short answers in this topic, right? I mean, that's just... Uh, James, I'm sure you have a question. You have lots of really brilliant questions. But can I selfishly ask one question that For I think sure. is a yes or no answer, John? Uh, so I heard you say this too uh, before about, um, you know, fascia and muscle being a continuum of specialized continuum. Do you, from your perspective, then from this perspective, all five different tissue types, you know, neural and epithelial and muscle and sure. connective are a continuum. Okay. What do we eat? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> well, this is not going to be a yes we, and no answer. No, you bet your life. <laughs> okay. Oh, no. We can, we can make this as complex as one wishes to make it. We, but what do we eat? We eat fats, carbohydrates, and proteins. Now, we throw into that mix, um, you know, we throw into that mix our, our metals. So we have our calciums and our potassiums, magnesiums, etc. They're really in there to help neurological function they're certainly in there to offer just a little extra um, you know structural integrity to the tissues um, now having said that by the way a, a calcium or iron in your diet is not to be mistaken for the for the iron in a building there's a there's a similarity there but, but they're, they're also different but the facts of the matter are that you are fat carbohydrate and protein mm. and of course there's there's bound water in the mix as well so is there anybody that would disagree with that is there anybody who would disagree with the fact that you're fat carbohydrate and protein no not not, not in this audience okay. <laughs> i think the immediate so, audience so really what we're talking then is we're really talking about how those how those materials are put together mm-hmm. how they're mm-hmm. broken down and how their atomic structure is is really put together. It's the relationship then of the protons and the neutrons and so on. But essentially, we can't be made of anything other than fat, carbohydrate, and protein. Mm. And that, that's what we are. So, and we are continuous. So we are a continuity based upon differences in the levels of fat, carbohydrates, and proteins. Mm-hmm. And you know, some people look at, at fat and say fat is not intelligent, and they look at um, sugars and say that sugars 
are not intelligent. Well, sugars are, are crystals. So there might not be an intelligence in, in the same way within crystals, but crystals are so hugely important to us in terms, if you squeeze or if you distort a, a crystal, it emits a small electrical discharge. And this is called piezoelectric activity. And so that is hugely important, important in terms of the uh, in terms of the function of, of cells, cellular activity. But it, it just all comes back to the fact that really what we have is we have a spectrum and from one end of the spectrum to the other, let's take muscle fibres. And as a physiologist, I have a conversation with you about muscle fibres. And I say to you, well, what we have really is we have a spectrum. And the spectrum at one end is red and on the other end, it's white glistening beautiful silvery white and what do you have somewhere in the middle well you have probably a pink and that's what you have now we started out by saying that we have type one fibers we have type two fibers then we had a subclassification of type two a and b and why is it that we had three fiber types well two but the second type has a, a subclassification. Why is it that we have three fiber types? Well, we had three methods of staining muscle tissue. Hence, we had three fiber types. Mm. We now have several ways of staining muscle tissue. And so now we have several muscle fiber types, but they're all within the spectrum of red to white. Mm -hmm. They're all within that spectrum. And it's the same in terms of, we'll go back now to the, to the kind of the bigger gross picture of the human body. You simply have a spectrum of speciality within the connective tissues. Mm -hmm. So your muscle fibers have evolved to provide you with the facility of contraction better than any other cell in the human body. But remember all cells are mini-me's. You remember mini-me, mini-me. <laughs> so all cells are mini-me's. And, and people don't realise that. People don't appreciate that, that a nerve cell has the ability to contract. It has to have, because all cells are a reflection of the, of the whole organism. Mm -hmm. They secrete, they digest, they excrete, they are involved in metabolism, you know, they break down the fuels that that they that they are given in order to produce you know a different type of fuel okay a, 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 you know a cell can't digest a, a brussels sprout or it can't it can't digest a hershey a hershey something or other. Um, your teeth and mouth and saliva and your your you know your body does that for it. but at the end of the day it provides it with the with the food with the fuel and then it has to break that fuel down. So that's a form of digestion. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it's, uh, it's on the micro scale, but it's still digestion. Mm -hmm. And so all cells have to, do, have to have these facilities. They have to do this. So your nervous cells, your cells of the nervous system, they've really specialized um, to facilitate the sending of electrical signals. The fascia also has the ability to contract also has the ability to send um, nerve signals, but it's, but it's specialised in, 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 in what it does. So all cells are mini-me's. So 
there's your answer. I'm sorry that it was a little bit long-winded, but um, no, it's, it's back to the spectrum. That's great. It's perfect. The, the, uh, yeah, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's perfect because I will never be able to get out of my head the visual of a little cell eating a Brussels sprout. Right. Like that, <laughs> that's going to live with or me. Or not eating a Brussels sprout. <laughs> <laughs> that I mean, means it's like a cell. But a cell, if you, if you stop and think about it, the cell, you know, has what we call a cell membrane. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the cell membrane uh, has, you know, the cell membrane, however it came about, um, it, you know, it came about, you know, what, how many, 650 million years ago mm-hmm. for whatever reasons. But what it did was it kept whatever was outside out and it kept whatever was inside in. And now all the other little partners uh, in this circle uh, agreed to work together. They agreed that the bigger guys wouldn't eat the smaller guys. So, you know, one of the organals basically said, uh, this is not going to come across correct at all, but, you know, the, <laughs> one of the big organs breaks something down and poops it out. And the smaller guy says, hey, don't eat me. See, that stuff you just pooped out, I can actually digest that and provide energy for the cell. And they said, okay, so you can be part of the gang. And so, you know, it broke down whatever that was and it provided two additional ATPs. And, um, and, and, so, and so goes the story. So you have your, your mitochondria and you, you have your, um, your, your Golgi apparatus and all of these other organelles which work together to break down or to digest a fuel to provide you then with this other fuel, which we call adenosine triphosphate, which is what is it's the fuel that all living uh, creatures use, right down to the lowly worm. Um, mm-hmm. Horses and cats have a slightly different system to us, but it's very, very similar. They all use ATP as well. And, and so that's what I'm saying to you that, I mean, we call it digestion, you know, the, the, the breaking apart of a, a piece of meat or a biscuit or a, a you know, some kind of plant that you're eating, what you're doing is you're breaking apart these connections and relationships of energy. That's what you're doing, and you're, you're breaking them apart mechanically using your, your teeth or you're using you know, saliva enzymes to help break those relationships apart. Uh, but when it gets down to the cell, it's, it's doing something very, very similar. The cell doesn't have teeth, but it's still involved in a form of digestion. How, how are we so- doing <laughs> <laughs> I, I can feel I can feel mines being blown everywhere. Yeah. Like it's just little landmines going on. I mean, yeah, I feel like we're doing fantastic, and I just can't. I, maybe I'm just stuck in this um, in this point of view. But uh, you know the the value um, of understanding the pieces. It's like a it's our human nature, right, to to search for meaning and understanding, and and yet we miss so much, right? We miss the bigger picture. And this, uh, the way you're describing it, John, and you know the conversation that we're having, it's like by breaking it down and giving everything a different name and talking about, you know, it's digestion. If we're talking about taking in food and what happens, you know, via the the stomach and the intestines. But it's it's called something else if we're talking about how the cell takes in 
you know, energy or, or, you know, fuel and then, and then processes it. It's like, it keeps us right. It pigeonholes our perspective or our way of thinking um, so that we, we are not able to go beyond and see how things, everything is connected. Everything is integrated, right? The whole, I just, it's for me, it's a little bit mind blowing just because, you know, seeing this, all of these things from this view, right. Of, of, uh, how much is lost, um, you know, and if we talk about movement potential and, and the restoring of, uh, you know, joyful, healthy, organic movement that there's, we're missing so much if, you know, if we don't stand back into, what did you say beautifully, almost poetically earlier, the... Oh, did I say cleansing, a cleansing breath? Yes, right, exactly. Um, And I think, you know, for us as an industry, uh, we really are maybe collectively at this point, and and perhaps this is what you were noticing, uh, you know, after being at the PMA, it's like we are collectively taking the cleansing breath and stepping back. What I'd like to explore um, within that realm, and we were sort of heading there, is uh, as you know, most of our audience, you know, are movement instructors, and so I think I'd like to know, John, because um, I'm, you know, you. You have spent time with Pilates instructors. You've spent time with yoga instructors. I'm sure you've spent time with, you know, many different movement instructors. What would you like, what do you notice as a flaw in the way that movement is being taught, you know, biomechanical versus biotensegrity? And what, how would you um, like to see the evolution of movement being taught just from a strictly you know like from from what you have to give to the conversation is there something is there a shift we could be heading towards or at least uh considering um to to get maybe a clearer picture movement wise for what you're teaching anatomy wise Uh, that's a that is such a rich question it really is james that's a great question so first of all Let's just move, okay? That's that's point number one. Uh-huh. Let's just move. I really, at the end of the day, I don't mind what way people wish to move. If somebody, you know, wants to build their biceps and triceps, they can hang that upper limb out the, the window of their Jeep in the summertime. Good luck to you if that's what you wish to do. I would like to inform you as to why that, that may cause problems. And mm-hmm. once I've given you the explanations, if you wish to continue doing what you do, at least you're doing it from an informed base. And then mm-hmm. good luck to you. We live in a democracy, and I love democracy with all its flaws. Uh, the facts of the matter are you need to be informed. Now, again, t- take, a look, take a look back at, at the likes of someone like uh, Joseph Pilates and others who were around before him. I mean, I grew up uh, based on a diet of Charles Atlas, if you remember Charles Atlas, and Mm. um, he talked about dynamic tension, which is something that has lived with me right up to the the present day, because he was so correct. Now, his his methods of of training were uh, not something I would necessarily um, support today, but the language of dynamic 
tension is a, is a beautiful uh, is a beautiful model and all of these individuals by the way they they went through uh, circus training they went through boxing boxing is one of the most mm-hmm. incredible uh, training formats because they they train in what i call a full body kinetic chain approach these guys were involved in in, in um, the martial arts they were involved in wrestling um, they used to put on gymnastic displays and so but but the common theme in all of those uh, whether they were using indian bells or other types of um, of uh, instruments or or uh, equipment they were full body it was full body connected movement not sitting into um you know um a shoulder press and mm-hmm. disconnect the lower from the upper and then asking you know the shoulder to be able to create the forces needed to overcome these incredibly uh, large weights because how the body organizes itself in movement is whole body kinetic chain movement and it is not linear this is a huge point to make um, you cannot just draw a line from a tip of a finger to somewhere up in the chest and say look at this line this line exists i can cut out for you any line or any shape of a line in the subcutaneous uh, tissues and indeed maybe even in the the um, the fascia profunda uh, forces operate in the human body in a non-linear manner yeah and so this mm-hmm. is this is the step that we need to take so once once you're moving um, I, I love the idea that people are moving and that they should be as much as possible uh, trying to uh, trying to involve themselves in full body movements. That doesn't mean to say that there isn't, um, uh, you know, a space for uh, more isolated movement because isolated movements can occur as transitions or they can just be part of uh, what you need to do on a day-to-day basis. But they shouldn't be forming the mainstay of the type of exercise uh, that somebody is doing. It's not certainly if somebody wants to have health-related movement, as opposed to what somebody might view as being aesthetically pleasing. That's Mm -hmm. a a different different view. So have I answered your question, do you think, James, or? Yeah, no, totally. Uh, And and I think that's important because, you know, as movement instructors, I think the idea Concepts, you know, if you're if you're teaching movement, you're more than likely a kinesthetic person, and so I think when when you understand, you know, concepts corporally, the idea of whole body movement versus you know isolated movement makes makes great sense. Or maybe the idea of pec minor versus you know a, a continuum of of soft tissue is a little more abstract for people. And I think that's important because my, the, I think the question Chantel was sort of leading up to there is, you know, in your, in your, uh, in your adventures, you know, studying the biomechanical perspectives of anatomy to this biotensegrity version, you know, going from bits and pieces to a whole body self-evolving, organizing organism, how does that affect your relationship with people? Like to how, when you when you're looking at someone, uh, 
especially as a clinical anatomist, either as people in daily life or as, as a patient, how is it how has that impacted you looking at something from a shifted view of biomechanics to biotensegrity? Well, it makes me it makes me wonder when somebody asks me the question which I get asked on a regular basis, and I've been asked this question certainly for the last twenty five years of my career. Uh, John, why do humans have low back pain? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm just. And I'm, I'm, in some ways, I'm amazed that people ask that question mm-hmm. because to me, it's, it's reasonably evident as to why we have low back pain. First of all, uh, and second of all, by the way, when I'm, when I'm looking at people um, moving and then I get the opportunity to speak to them, when, because I, I suppose, I've, as I say earlier, um, I've, I've spent my career trying to perfect my, my language and my vocabulary, when they hear some of the explanations that I give, it resonates with them. Now, of course, there's going to be people who don't agree with you, but for the most part, I haven't really come across too many of them. I've, I've really come across people saying, wow, yeah, that makes that just makes good, good sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we can get into something that's a little bit more esoteric, um, which is I talk about solid geometry being 3D and the human body actually operates on a, a fourth dimension. It doesn't operate just on three dimensions, but maybe that's a conversation for another day. Because we are not hard matter physics, we're soft matter physics. We need, we need different explanations. But um, I find people, um, I, I find people uh, once they listen, they really, do, they really do grasp what it is that I'm, that I'm saying to them. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, particularly some of the younger people, you know, they're in their 20s and they, they want to, you know, have the big biceps and triceps. And I'm not trying to spoil anybody's party. I'm saying go ahead and enjoy that. But what I want to do, and I can't help myself, if somebody's in, you know, studying in an undergraduate degree program or they're, stu- they're in as part of some professional training, I have to give them the, the accurate information so that they're informed. It'd be a little bit like somebody smoking a cigarette and saying, well, I took up smoking because I didn't understand uh, the implications. Well, what you do is you explain the implications to somebody. Now, if that person wants to pick up that cigarette and inhale that smoke, that's their business. And what I would say is I hope they enjoy every single cigarette that they smoke. I hope that they take incredible pleasure out of it as opposed to turning around and saying, I'm just addicted, otherwise I'd, I'd give up. Well, you know, you, it's not that you didn't know you'd become addicted. It's not that you didn't know that inhaling this smoke affects every single cell in your body. We're now educated. So, so mm-hmm. there are no excuses for people. If you've taken up smoking, you've taken it up based upon being informed. Unless you, I don't, unless you live somewhere where there's just no, um, no access to newspapers and TVs and radios. So it's about being informed. And then we live in a democracy. Well, we do today anyway. Thank goodness. Who knows what the future, what the future holds? No, I promise I wouldn't. I promised myself I wouldn't go down that route. <laughs> no, I'm not going down that route. I didn't. We edit that. No, you're not going to edit that out. Of course, you want to keep that part. Yeah. I was going to say we could edit that out. But... Yeah. Again, James, just for me to check, do you, have, do you think I've answered the, the, the 
question for you or were you thinking from a slightly different perspective? I just want to make sure that, I, that I'm answering no, the question. No, that's, that's perfect. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Um, so, you know, this season on our podcast, we have been centering around the topic of, of celebration. And so we've been asking all of our guests on the podcast, um, it's a very open-ended question, so you can interpret and answer however you'd like. But within your practice, whatever that means for you, what are you, what are you going to be celebrating this year? I'm going to be celebrating Phineas Taylor Barnum this year, who is the I um, <laughs> founder of Barnum's Circus. That's Barnum Circus, and you need to go and see the movie, The Greatest Show. It is just the oh, most interesting movie. I I'm have telling heard. every single patient and every single student that I uh, come into contact with. Now, obviously, the the story, you know, is not the, you know, it's not a kind of a, 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 a biography of uh -huh. Barnum's life. I mean, there's lots about it that are that are not accurate. Um, but you know, and this this is has such a um, a connection with the body work and movement therapy people because the, the, Barnum was a little bit like Joseph Pilates and a bit like mm -hmm. um, uh, people who who were of that ilk. Um, I don't know if many people will have heard of of um, Bernard McFadden, but you should check out Bernard McFadden. He was the father of health related fitness on this side of the world and. Um, you know, he was just an he was an incredible individual as well. But uh, and the movie is just fantastic. My kids brought me to see it for the second time um, oh, great. on Wednesday on Wednesday evening, and we're just singing the songs. And it's a celebration of movement. It's a celebration of um, maybe being a little bit different. There, um, what do they have in the movie? They have the. Uh, a dog boy or a beard boy or something to that effect or <laughs> a girl who grows the beard and so and it's it's about celebrating diversity and you know not a, right. you know don't don't worry if you're a little bit different to everybody else celebrate that difference and um you know for, for individuals you know not to ostracize people who happen to be a little bit different. I mean bodywork therapy and and movement is so fantastic. I'm so proud of the fact that the Pilates um, practitioners or bodywork therapy practitioners, their hearts are just in the right place. They want to do something positive for their community. Mm. They want to yeah. help people to move better, to live more fulfilled lives, to perhaps live a more pain-free life. None of us can ever avoid pain, but perhaps we can mm -hmm. deal with the pain better, manage it better, and maybe we can avoid it for longer. And uh, this is really the work of the of the Pilates teacher and others, and so um, that might sound like a strange answer to give you to your question, but yeah, that's who I'm celebrating at the moment in my uh, in my office is uh, is Phineas Barnum. It's um, <laughs> thanking him for for giving us what he gave us, which ultimately I suppose was the was the circus. <laughs> so delightful. I, that's yeah. That's. Uh, it, it, Probably my favorite response of the season. Thank you yeah. so much. So, <laughs> so delightful. Thanks, Jane. So, so great. I, I know we'll probably cut the podcast here, but uh, what I want to say to you, John, is that um, James and another colleague of ours recently did a workshop here um, in Sacramento, where we live. And there was this moment of we were talking about um, 
you, you know, us as professionals, as Pilates professionals, being in alignment about what we do and, and not being so confused about what we do, what our intent is, you know, confusing that with the how of what we do, right? And this is a conversation that's been going on in our community for a long time. But, and and what we ended up, I think, talking about was we are, what we do is we help people feel better. You know, and I do mm. think that what you see in us is really true. You know, that the Pilates community is such a big hearted community of, of people who really just want to help people feel better. And that is wonderful. Well, last Sunday, I, I gave a presentation to a group of 50 Pilates um, instructors. And this is basically what I said at the end of the day when I was finishing with them. I, I was just making that, that point. And, uh, you know, it's a great way to live life. And um, when I was doing my very first degree, I'll always remember my dean, of, we had a dean of discipline. And I remember my dean of discipline came in and uh, said, he was quoting um, from somebody uh, famous, who I can't remember now at the moment, but he, was, he said, life is a poem. And then he looked at me and he said, young Sharky, he said, everybody gets a chance to write a verse. What will your verse be? Mm. And at, you know, 18, coming on 19 years of age, that had such a profound effect on me. You've no idea because mm. I stopped for a moment and thought, wow, he's absolutely correct. You get one bite of the cherry. And, mm. you know, I think we'd all like to leave you know, some kind of legacy behind, no matter how small or how big. I mean, if it's only making a change, you know, just to, you know, in your local back garden, or it's making a change a little bit further afield within your community. I mean, community-based uh, for me is, is everything. It's about, so whether that's, you know, slightly more national or more global, but what whatever, you know, size community you're involved in, that to, to be able to have a positive effect on individuals um, and it's not only about movement, by the way. It's, mm -hmm. it's a philosophy that also encourages respect, respect for other individuals. Yeah. And um, I think in, this, in the era that we're in right now, it's, it's sorely needed. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so thank goodness uh, for Pilates and other um, movement practitioners. But we're talking about Pilates today and our focus is on Pilates. <laughs> so, uh. yeah. John, what an absolute joy. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank so you so much, John. We really appreciate you taking the time. No, I'm delighted. I love, I love uh, these opportunities to get to, to speak to a wider, a wider audience. So thanks for having me, guys. It was really fantastic. Well, what did I tell you? Such a great conversation. Such a wonderful human being. And it was just a pleasure to take you through that and to, to host that conversation. James and I and Deborah hope that you enjoyed it and got a lot from it. We want you to uh, make sure that you check out the show notes and see what John is up to. He's going to be in the States this coming September doing a workshop at Wendy LeBlanc Arbuckle Studio, Pilates Center of Austin. And we have all of those details for you. So make sure you find out how to connect with him and, and how to see him and learn from him because I actually cannot imagine a better opportunity. By now, many of you have heard about Momentum Fest, this awesome celebration of movement and Pilates that's happening this summer, June. June 22nd through 24th 
in Broomfield, Colorado, and this is the inaugural year of this event created by Jessica and Brian Vallant. And as the days tick by and the seasons begin to change, I've been thinking a lot about the summertime and being there in Colorado and at the Omni Lockin Hotel and Retreat Center for the festival. And so I thought that I would share a little fantasy daydream with you about being there because sometimes it's just cool to put ourselves a little bit out in the future and to kind of sink into what the experience might be like. So for me, I'm imagining sunshine and clean air as I walk around the hotel and the retreat center, which is so gorgeous. And, you know, you have that, that sense of like the smell of the trees and the retreat center is surrounded um, by trees, which is so beautiful. And then of course there's lounging areas and there are pools and there's just a scent about it. There's a smell of summer. There's the smell of the trees. And then there's the sound of happy people. And this is the thing that I, that my attention keeps being drawn to is the sound of my friends and my colleagues, uh, their excited chatter, the smiles on their faces. And you know, when you leave a movement class or you watch a student leave and you can see how almost vibrant they look, right? Their faces are relaxed, their bodies are at ease, they're walking more smoothly. I'm just imagining um, like an acre worth of people walking around like this and talking about how good it is to be moving and to be around people who just want to move. And without any you know, need for it to be right or wrong, or even without any need to call what we're doing Pilates, just, just moving and just exploring. And for me, the Momentum Fest is going to be such a, an awesome opportunity to really just move and to see how people are being creative in their own bodies and, um, to have a ton of fun and really take the time to be in celebration of ourselves, our bodies and movement and to do that with people of like-mindedness in the middle of a beautiful setting, I just can't think of anything better. So want to make sure you have all the information about Momentum Fest. Again, it's happening June 22nd through 24th in Broomfield, Colorado, which is right outside of Boulder, very close to the airport. And there is an amazing lineup of teachers, including our very own James Crater. I know we've got a whole posse of people from Northern California who are going. There are, of course, all the necessary links in the show notes. Check it out. Uh, let them know if you have any questions, and we'll be seeing you there, we hope. Okay, that's it for us. Just another quick and gentle reminder that if you love what we're up to, leave us a review on iTunes. And we also wanted to nudge you a little bit in the direction of commenting on the post underneath the show notes, because we would really love to know if you like the podcast, what you like about it, what's interesting, what's inspiring, what questions you have, and um, just be able to continue the conversation outside of the moment of listening. So you can do that at thinkingpilates.com. Go to the show notes for the episode that you're listening to and the comments at the bottom. 
and we would just totally dig it. So that's it for now. Until next time, everybody, breathe deep and teach well. Let that stress go